And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. This is Harmony with Rebel Girls Book Club, and today I am super excited because I am interviewing Jacinda Townsend, who is the author of Mother Country. This is a interview that came about because of the Miami Book Fair, and Jacinda Townsend, along with Thrifty Umregar, Sarai Walker, and Ingrid Rojas Contreras are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for Miami Book Fair 2022, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They, along with Patti Smith, Lisa Genova, Rabia Chaudhry, Sai Montgomery, and Sandra Cisneros, are so looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and streamed live from the fair from Sunday, November 13th through Sunday, November 20th. Please visit MiamiBookFair.com for more information or follow MBF at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. So without further ado, this is Jacinda Townsend, and would you like to give us a brief summary of who you are as an author? Sure. My name's Jacinda Townsend, and I write mostly feminist books um, in the African-American tradition. I have a novel called Saint Monkey that came out in 2014. And then my most recent novel, Mother Country, is in the same tradition. It came out in May of this year. I also write in what I call diptych form, which is that all my novels are someone telling one story with another story sort of pushing up against it. Some other country is the same thing. That's super cool. I actually had some questions about form, but that's a new word for me. So we'll have to elaborate that on that in a second. But before we get started, could you give our listeners who I'm assuming maybe haven't read the full book yet a brief summary of the novel? Sure. So, and this is a no spoiler summary because a lot of what I'm going to say happens right in the front of the novel. So Mother Country is about a woman named Shannon who goes to Morocco on a business trip, finds a child in the Medina, and then absconds with that child back to the United States. Kidnap is a word that my publisher uses, but I think as you read the book, you know, there there is some question about whether this in her head was kidnapping. That child belongs to a woman named Surya, who is a she's a very young woman who has escaped modern day slavery in Mauritania and she's stuck in Morocco with no papers. So the things she has to do for work are are often unsavory. So the novel is about what happened both before and after the kidnapping. 
Okay, thank you so much. All right, so you used this word earlier to describe a story with a story. Can you say that word again? And um... Sure, sure. So I, I kind of coined it for myself, writing in diptych. So it's kind of a term I'm borrowing from visual arts, you know, where there are maybe two panels in a painting. And I love to write this way because one of my favorite sort of obsessions in terms of narrative is the other side of the story, you know? So the novel I'm working on now is about this woman who she changed her identity and her husband doesn't know until she files for divorce. And then her name's not the name on the filing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I wanted to know her side of the story, too. So I love writing in diptych and offering a different sort of view. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. I actually, so that's amazing because the first questions that I have for you are about style and form. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead a little bit because the word perspective actually comes up a lot in this book. And your novel really plays with perspectives, kind of in this way that you're describing, which I guess is your writing style. Not only with Surya. Can you say your name one more time for me? Sure, Surya. Surya. Okay, good. I'm saying it right. Yes. <laughs> okay. And Shannon. And you, you also, you also like to play with a few other characters' perspectives as well. But one of the really interesting things I noticed when you're doing that is sometimes you alternate between third, second, and first-person narratives. So. I guess this goes into a little bit about what you're describing me to me as your writing style. Diptych, is that the word? Yes, yes. Okay, diptych. Okay, I'm going to remember that. <laughs> Why is that important for a story like this one that deals so heavily with perspective and reality and displacement, which I guess I'll ask a question about later. Sure. So I think, you know, it's interesting, first of all, When I was doing the research about modern day slavery, I found out this, I found this sort of stunning perspective that people in Mauritania and people sort of in certain parts of the world, not just Mauritania, they kind of see slavery as something that isn't that bad. You know, in the, in the case of Mauritania, People see slavery sometimes as something that Allah has sanctioned. You know, it's what makes it so hard to escape slavery is that the slaves themselves think that they're part of this divine order of things. And it kind of, it blew my mind. It made me very sad, but made me realize that there are, in fact, there are all sorts of different perspectives. And I wanted to capture some of them in the book. So you bring up the uh, second person. There's a whole chapter told in second person that's from the perspective of five people who witnessed the kidnapping and sort of did and said nothing. But they all have their good reasons, you know, and by the end of the chapter, I think you're sort of sympathizing with them, even as you're indicting them. And and it, it it's important to me. So second person, I think, is kind of does that work. First person, I wanted to offer there's there's I wanted to give the the little girl herself voice, which I did in first person. And there's a chapter that's sort of written from the perspective of her brain and first person where we found out, we find out sort of what's the physical sort of neurological process 
of forgetting your mother, forgetting where you're from, forgetting your language, you know? So all of these points of view, I feel like are doing the, the essential work of just offering a completely different sense of justice, if you will, you know, because I think we all, when we hear about things like this, we immediately come to this sort of snap conclusion about it. But really, when you start dissecting situations, even when you can come to some objective sense of moral wrong, often it's way more complicated than that. The the why and the how people come to do what they do is so incredibly complicated. I appreciate that. I feel like it definitely added more context to the book. And speaking of context, so you do this thing that you've already kind of mentioned when giving us the summary, where you drop us right in the middle when the kidnapping, which is the term your publisher used, takes place. And the beginning of the novel for me was a little bit like a fever dream because I'm here and, and I'm like, I, I don't know what's going on. And we, we're, sh- we're changing all of these perspectives and you have to really build the context around it. So why was that a choice that you decided to make where we don't have all of the information at the beginning and the story is kind of folding non-linearly throughout the novel? So initially, that's such a good question. Initially, the novel was sort of told in straight chronological order, actually. So we began at the beginning with sort of Shannon's sad childhood. And then my editor was kind of like, well, that that doesn't make me wonder as hard, you know. So I, I'm a big fan of beginning a novel with the whole as much what, when, who, where as we can, and then moving on to the why and the how. And so I figured if I dropped the reader in the pot boiling, as it were, with with this shocking kidnapping, right, that we then get to spend the rest of the novel answering the why and the how. And it really does take the entire novel, listeners. <laughs> I had tried to read over half the novel yesterday, and I was like, well, I, I'm sure I've got a good sense. And then I finished it, and I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> oh, wait, that was not the sense I had. So thank you for that. We kind of already, we touched upon this, but without giving too much away, it's evident that displacement seems, at least to me, like a major theme throughout this book. Did you set out to write about the effects of being stolen from a home country, or were you more concerned with the concept of belonging or something else altogether? I think that, first of all, you know, it was hard to sort of write a novel set in Morocco as someone who's not Moroccan, you know, I didn't want to sort of appropriate anyone's thinking or, you know, cultural perspective or anything. But that it was way easier for me to write a novel where both protagonists are actually outsiders to that culture. You know, one is from Mauritania and one is from America because I had, in fact, had such a a sense of alienation sometimes when I was traveling there, you know, as a, and, and one writer who I love, who, you know, writes a lot about Morocco is Paul Bowles. And it's interesting because he spent 27 years of his life there actually, but his writing about Morocco just transmits such a sense of such a lack of belonging and such a sense of alienation. And and I often wonder why in the world did you stay 27 years, you know? And so I wanted to kind of 
look at Morocco through an, an expat lens that was also of color because that is a different Morocco. The Morocco <laughs> I experienced was so different from the Morocco Paul Bowles experienced. And that, that sense of alienation has this double layer of, you know, you're in a place where everybody sort of looks like you and everybody's your color, but it's so foreign to, still so foreign to you. And so that was a big part of, I think, underlying both of their psyches is that they're both the right color. They should both fit right into this country. And yet they really don't. They also, neither of them in some ways fit in to their own countries. You know, Shannon has her parents are, it's kind of like she's raised by this iceberg and this neurotic, you know, and has had a very hard childhood. Saria was trafficked into slavery at a very young age. So yeah, I, I, it's not a pick me up. <laughs> There's a lot of sense of alienation that underlies both, both characters in the landscape. How does that this is a question I'm building on the fly, so forgive me if it's not very eloquent, but how does that play in with the title, Mother Country? This is obviously a book about motherhood to a certain extent, because we're focusing on these two mothers of this one child who was kidnapped. But even in the beginning, Shannon seems, she mentions that this is the mother country, even though we don't know where her ancestry is from. And I was just interested in that connection, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on it. Sure. So, and I, I wish I could take credit for the title. The original title was Kif, because Kif is such a huge part of the plot. Someone at Grey Wolf suggested Mother Country, and I was like, that totally fits. I think they, almost none of these people, even some of the minor characters, don't quite have a country. They don't quite have a home. Vladimir has really not a home, you know, this is Shannon's husband. And what Shannon and Saria find is that their country is mother country, but mother country turns out to be the messiest place. And it's something that I, I think, you know, as, as a mother who is a feminist, I really, I felt so strongly about this being kind of the thematic backbone of the novel that, you know, motherhood is very different from fatherhood. Both of these women in some ways are sort of bodily tied to whether they can have children or not. And when they, you know, in the case of Saria, when she has this child, she is just bodily tied to her. Right. And the, the sort of gritty reality of motherhood as being this, this thing that just sort of, subsumes the self and metamorphosizes the self is something that was important to me. And I actually, I will take credit for the cover because I didn't draw it, but that was my idea. I was like, it has to be a woman smoking a cigarette because I think, you know, we think of motherhood in this way in, in which we think all women are aspiring to be June Cleaver and if they fall short of that, then, you know, shame on them. And I, that is so not my motherhood. Motherhood is like you and your friends, yes, sitting around smoking this, whatever this cigarette is, right? Just talking about what a, what a, and, and I'm feeling this more because my own kids are teenagers now, but just 
how much of the how much of the self gets buried, how much of the self gets transformed in these ways that you grow to love after a while, but but yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's really interesting cuz I I guess so <laughs> Let me figure out how to formulate this. But when you're talking about self, what really struck me by reading these two characters' perspectives is that the self in the inner world throughout this novel is very different from how they are acting out in the outer world. And motherhood kind of plays a part in that. Motherhood is this active part, but it also sort of grounds them a little bit into their selves. And I was wondering... I guess what the purpose of that dysphoria was. And for me as a reader, it really created reality seemed very shaky. And I was wondering if that was important too. Like what was the importance of a shaky reality and this this disconnect between inner and outer selves and how that ties into motherhood? That's a big question. Can you tackle sure. it? Yeah, I will try. One of One of the things that made me write the book was of course the fact that you know, modern day slavery exists in this brutal way that I just can't, I, I can't even believe. 20% of the Mauritanian population is still enslaved to this day, right? But the other half was kind of about when I had kids, both of them were sort of like emergency C-sections, which is not what I had wanted or expected, you know? And it took me a long time to feel like their mother. It, feel, it took me a long time not to feel like a failure, like I had failed at this critical moment. And my sense of reality or surreality and dysphoria around that was huge. And I wanted to try to evoke that, that really what grounds you is the idea that to love is a verb. And when you're faced with a situation like this, you have to just keep verbing that. You have to keep doing that as a verb, right? So Shannon, I, and 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 kind of what made me write the book was, I spooled that out to the nth degree, and I thought, what if you acquired a child in this weird, horrible way? How long would it take you to feel like that child's actual mother? You know, and I think that Shannon just has to keep, she just has to keep doing it as a verb, you know what I mean? Even when she doesn't believe in herself and she doesn't believe she's doing it properly, you just have to keep doing it. And I think that's so authentic to reality. A lot of mothers really have to just keep doing it. There is no other option anyway, it turns out. <laughs> but yes. This wasn't a question I had thought about beforehand, but as you're talking about this, I'm thinking more about Soraya. So I'm thinking more about her and how motherhood was thrust upon her at such a young age, right? Because for Shannon, it is really a choice. And for her, it's not. But again, it is, her story seems to, not immediately, but eventually get better through motherhood. And we really get less of a sense of this dysphoria once she becomes a mother. And so I was wondering if you could tell us more about her perspective and how that's thrust upon you. Sure. And I don't, I, you know, it's funny. It is more of a choice for Shannon, but in some ways, I don't know that it, it is a, I don't know that it is as much of a free choice as 
we'd like to think it is. Um, she faces a lot of pressure around this infertility, the, a lot of societal pressure, a lot of pressure from her husband about it. And one sort of plot point I wanted to highlight is that she she gets married because she needs dental insurance, basically. Uh, so it's kind of like this Henry the the Eighth situation where she has to produce a kid or else she's gonna lose all her insurances and stuff. So there there is that and I totally lost track of your question. I'm sorry. I was thinking about Henry the Eighth. <laughs> You're completely fine. It wasn't a very well-formulated question. I guess I was just wondering, for Soraya, it feels more like, after reading it, it feels more like motherhood cures some of the dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Like, reality Mm -hmm. starts to become more in tune with her inner self. And I guess not Mm -hmm. completely, but to me, that's sort of the sense I got. And I'm wondering if that's accurate or... Oh, I see what you're saying. Soraya, okay. I thought you meant Shannon. Sure, sure. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I think Saria too has to, even though motherhood is thrust upon her, she, in some ways, she has to make the same decisions as Shannon to make this a verb. And she really, her life is so harrowing, right? So she has to make a lot of conscious decisions to keep this child with her, to keep this child from being in danger to feed this child, you know, in, I mean, out of the garbage can, just to make all these decisions about whether they can eat or ride this train one day, you know what I mean? And so she too, I think, and, and, and I think it's important to note that both of them become more and more their own agents of change they actually you know make their own positive ways through life without much external help and that was important to me as well but yeah i would say absolutely yes saria kind of makes her own good life there by reconciling her reconciling the dysphoria around suddenly becoming a mother another thing that really struck me while reading this I, and I'm still kind of grappling with it because I have a lot of feelings about it. I think especially because I'm reading a book about two black women and I'm a white person. So this particularly felt important. But there's such there's such a big gap in privilege between Surya and Shannon. And even though we're getting all of Shannon's perspective, that gap in privilege still is very... It still feels very large, right? And it's what ends up justifying some of these really bad decisions that Shannon makes or that people around her choose to let her make, I guess, without spoiling anything. And so I'm wondering, as as the author, what your feelings were and intentions were surrounding this privilege and then also the choice to show both of those perspectives one where, you know, you're in actual slavery versus being in a comfortable but not emotionally comfortable home. Yeah. And this is, it's something I did in my other book too, in that, and and this is why I say I write in the feminist tradition, because often 
people are facing, people of quote unquote, you know, of privilege are also often facing some humongous constraints. And so one of the things I wanted to point out in this book is that both of these women are actually having to basically survive off of their bodies. You know, Shannon is doing it in a much more comfortable way, but basically She's a, she has $150,000 in medical debt, $180,000 in student loan debt, and she has to get married. And so her, her, the constraints she has and the, the sort of, you know, troubles that she faces are also troubles of being a woman. But you're right. Absolutely. She does, she does have obviously far more privilege, but I, I want to just sort of, in this book sort of, you know, dispel the myth that if you're a woman, privilege is necessarily going to get you to actual freedom. And it's one reason there's a refrain in the beginning and what to make of a choice and what to make of a choice. And both of the times I wrote it, the surrounding passage was kind of about how little choice either one of these women actually has. I think that's something that also... I keep saying stuck, so I apologize for repeating myself. But yeah, I think that's something that really stuck with me because, you know, this book takes place in 21st century America. At one point, there's a date that says 2019, and there's there's mentions of current events. And the fact that Shannon is forced to deal with such an inherently patriarchal situation, it just felt like... it. it it really highlighted the ways in which patriarchy can still exist, even in a well-developed, even though that's a weird, I don't necessarily believe that about America, even in a, like a well-developed country where we're supposed to have equal rights versus Soraya's story, which is just, it makes more sense, I guess, because there are so many things where Soraya physically can't have those rights. And mm-hmm. I guess, what was the choice about writing about patriarchy in these two very different worlds? Patriarchy operates in so many different ways. And it operates in so many different ways that I think the mainstream feminist movement has never quite been able to wrap its hands around. You know what I mean? I mean, it's for Saria, for instance, we have this we have this issue of culture and whether certain cultures are sort of allowed, if you will, to be more patriarchal than others. I, I mean, she is from this world. And I actually, I went to Mauritania in 2013. I was the only woman in the airport. I had to be chaperoned to the bank. I had to wear hijab. I mean, no man would shake my hand or look me in the eye, you know? And so it's how how much... How much tradition do we allow to constrain women? At what point do we need to just sacrifice that, right? That's a question. But also, yeah, I mean, Shannon is facing all sorts of things. One one thing that kind of is implicit, I think, in the narrative is that she can't find as good a job as her husband because she's a woman, you know? She's no less smart than she's she's no less smart than he is but he has somehow cobbled up this path and it's a lot to do with the fact that he's a man you know she all this debt she's in we know women have way more student loan debt than men right 
for various reasons. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, I, I love indicting patriarchy because it shows up and it shows up everywhere. Even the, the, you know, motherhood versus fatherhood question, right? And the fact that both Saria and Shannon are tied to motherhood in a way of Vladimir is that Vladimir can just trot off and go live his life, you know, and Shannon has custody all week of this child. So I hope, hope it indicted patriarchy <laughs> adequately. <laughs> it definitely did. Thank you. One of my, my final, one of my final questions, I guess, is about this idea of you use, you used to love as a verb, right? Looking at love as a verb. And both of your characters, even though neither, I guess, are confirmed orphans in Soraya's case, because she might, her father might still be alive. Both of them are taken away from their parents in some fashion, right? Or I guess for Soraya, she is taken away from her parents and Shannon does not feel a parental connection with her parents. And so that sense of orphanhood, how does that translate into how we love and then, you know, foster a new life in the world? You know, this this saying stuck with me and I feel like I'm, I may have been the person who started saying it, but our mothers ruin us for motherhood, right? Um, so in Saria's case, her mother was a martyr of sorts. And so she provided sort of the show that Saria sees for being a mom. In Shannon's case, her mother is so emotionally distant that it it sort of sets the stage for her to not even know how to love and how to mother properly. And, and this, this idea that they both have to make their own realities was pretty strong in my head. And I was really determined about that as well, that they would both have to really figure some things out by the end of the book. And it was, it was really healing for me, actually. And I'm a big believer that when you write a novel really subconsciously, whether you set out to do it or not, you're basically slaying some part of your psyche that just needed to go away. And when I got to the end of this book, the first draft of this, rather, I was like, oh, you know what? I think I have really figured out for myself that it it, it is very much that verb thing. Motherhood is not how you came by a child. It is not what happened at the moment of birth it's everything you do after and i think it's kind of a universal thing we we struggle a lot with you know there's this this phrase imposter syndrome that's going around now but really every single day of everyone's life you are verbing it really hard right and that's the only way to make it is to verb <laughs> thank you that is a really, I'm. that's going to stick with me because I'm not a mother, but I feel like everyone these days is trying to verb it really hard. And yeah, that's what I'm going to take away. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon within these questions that you want to say about your book? No, these were really good questions. One thing I like to talk about is the sort of, so I like to talk about sort of the political motivation for the book because there was the very personal one. But yeah, a lot of people don't know that. So 20% of the Mauritanian population is enslaved. 
I was working for Al Jazeera in 2013, and I met a woman who works for an organization called Free Our Slaves. And so she introduced me to some other anti-slavery activists. I went there and was hosted by them, and I met a family of escaped slaves. So this woman had eight children, all of whom had been born into slavery, all of whom had different fathers because her master had leased her out. The eighth baby had been born during her escape on her way out of the desert. So I got to hold this baby and it was the most powerful feeling because it was the feeling of what everyone throughout history has felt when they finally had that family member who was born free. And I asked her, you know, we, we spoke through translator and I was like, what can I do for you? And she was like, just tell my story, tell my story. And so I hope that I did that. But it is something of which I think the rest of the world isn't aware because this is such an isolated country. It's hard to get to. They have one state-owned television station, which sort of presents slavery in a positive light, actually. So it's something that I hope brings awareness to. Are there any organizations that you know of that listeners could look at or research? Yes. So the one, the main one in Mauritania is called SOS Esclav, E-S-C-L-A-V-E-S. And then there are, there's an organization called Anti-Slavery International that's sort of a blanket organization. And that's an English speaking organization. So readers might want to check them out as well. Thank you for that. Is there anything that you're working on currently? You mentioned a new novel that you want to plug to the listeners. And also, where can they follow you and your work? Sure. So I'm at jacinda-townsend.com. That's J-A-C-I-N-D-A-T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D.com. And um, actually, I'm working on... I'm. I'm revising the novel I was telling you about, about the woman who changed her identity and moved across the country. And so I'm working with my agent on sort of revising that and making it, giving it a little more life. Thank you so much, Harmony, for speaking to me. And thank you to all your your audience for listening. I hope Hope you read the book and enjoy it. And I am shout out to the Miami Book Fair. I'm so excited to be there. Yes, check out the Miami Book Fair 2022. It's going to be exciting. There's all of these wonderful authors like Jacinda. Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBCPod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.